You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode takes us to a university in England where two unrelated tragedies shock a college town. Megan, today is going to be a little bit of a different format than usual. Rather than reporting one case, we're going to be covering two cases. And although they're unrelated, they do take place in the same college town. So first, let's talk about Rebecca Love. Rebecca Love was a 26-year-old graduate student at the University of Hull in May 2007. She was from Yorkshire in the UK. She lived there with her parents, David and Carol, and her younger brother, Adrian. She was living in university housing, and she was studying marine biology, and the University of Hull specialized in this field. So this was a logical choice for a graduate program for someone who was an aspiring marine biologist like Rebecca. At 26, Rebecca was a little bit older than many of the other students. And while she told her family that she was having the time of her life, there is a little bit of an indication that she was lonely. She did make friends and she was making the most of university life, but she was on the quieter side and she didn't fit in as well as some of the younger students. Rebecca was close with her mom and they spoke or texted daily. Her mom had last spoke with her on Wednesday, May 2nd. On Friday, May 4th, her parents called the school and expressed concern that Rebecca had not been answering their communications for more than 24 hours. Now, this was very unusual for Rebecca, and the loves urged the school to check on her. The school might have been hesitant to follow up, being that Rebecca was 26 years old, but her parents weren't the only ones who were reaching out expressing concerns for her well-being. Some of her friends had contacted admins as well, saying that Rebecca hadn't been showing up to class. So in response to these concerns, the school performed a welfare check on Rebecca, and that is when they found her body inside her dorm room on Friday afternoon, May 4th, 2007. She lay on the floor of her dorm room with visible wounds. She was naked but for her socks, and the police would not state the cause of her death, but they did acknowledge from the start that it was a homicide. An autopsy on Rebecca was performed by pathologist Dr. Alfredo Walker, and it showed that she sustained a prolonged, vicious attack. Rebecca's body had signs of 93 injuries in total. She was stabbed in the head, throat, and inside of the mouth with several pens. One pen was shoved down her throat. Oh, my God. Sorry, did you say she was stabbed in the mouth with pens? Yes, I did. Um, However, Megan, none of these stabbings were fatal. The cause of death was actually asphyxiation caused by compression of the chest and neck. So there was a combination of the pen down her throat, strangulation and compression caused by her attacker kneeling on her chest. Rebecca's body showed no signs of sexual assault. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I I was going to point out that the compression on the chest was probably from kneeling. Yeah, that makes sense. 
The lead detective was Chief Inspector Tony Garten. The investigators on the case spoke to Rebecca's neighbors and tracked down her family and friends. Of course, they were trying to put a timeline together of her last known movements to try to figure out who she might have last been with. As the lead investigator said, it's crucial that we establish Rebecca's movements over the past few days. We're trying to build a picture of her and her lifestyle. So police spoke to everybody that they could, but nobody had reported hearing signs of anything at all. The door to Rebecca's room showed no signs of damage, and investigators had concluded that she had let her attacker in. I mean, it is possible, of course, that her door might just have been unlocked. As we've seen in other cases, students in dorm rooms don't always lock their doors, but we can't know for sure. The attack is so it's so odd that I'm I'm very curious about what the motive is going to be here. And is this a solved case? <laughs> you have to wait and see. Investigators at the scene realized that there was no cell phone found in Rebecca's room, and she was known to have one, so its absence was a bit of a clue for them. They also found Rebecca's house and dorm keys were also missing. Investigators had learned from Rebecca's parents that Rebecca had recently entered into a new relationship with a young man back from where she lived in Yorkshire. His name had not been publicly released, but they managed to obtain information from Rebecca's phone. Of course, even though they didn't have the phone with technology, they're still able to get information from her phone. And they found that there were text exchanges on the phone indicating that Rebecca had been having a casual sexual relationship over the past few months with a younger student named Jason Webster, who was about 20 years old. The two had met recently at a local nightclub. Now, everyone was surprised. There was an arrest very quickly. Um, All the police would say at this point is that they were holding a 20-year-old man in connection with Rebecca's death. And under UK laws, they were permitted to hold him for a limited amount of time. After that, the magistrate's court would have to approve further detention or they would have to let him go. So as we see here as well, the pressure's on the police to build a case quite quickly. Yeah. We come to find out they also arrested a man who was in his mid-30s, but then they eventually let him go. Nothing else had been reported about this man, who he was, or what his relationship was with Rebecca. And Amy, the 20-year-old, is that the only known relationship that Rebecca was having? Um, No, it was not, but we'll talk about that. Ah. By May 7th, just days after Rebecca was found, Jason Webster, again, this is the younger student that Rebecca had been seeing. He had been officially charged with, with Rebecca's murder. Now, Jason confirmed to the police that he and Rebecca had casually dated, At first, he did deny seeing her on the night she was killed. He did claim to have an alibi. He told police that he had been at a party. However, they were able to find out that he tried to concoct this alibi by calling a friend and telling the friend he was at the party. He was not able to produce anyone who actually saw him at the party. And it's not even clear that there was even a party at all. Ugh, terrible alibi. Yes. So police saw through this right away. And also the data on Rebecca's phone showed that the two had exchanged text messages just hours before police believed she had been killed. Police confronted Jason with all of this evidence, and they also interviewed people that he was with that night. And this is what they learned. So on the night of May 3rd, Jason had been partying while watching a soccer game. This was actually football in the UK. Oh, of course. So he was watching this match with his friends. They ended up on a pub crawl. Um, By all accounts, Jason was very intoxicated, and he had been saying to friends that he planned to pick up a woman, and he indicated that he was carrying a condom. But after failing, he decided that he was going to leave the nightclub and go see Rebecca. She had, I guess, had earlier agreed to see him, but then in another text, she told him not to bother visiting if he was going to be late. 
So Jason admitted that even though Rebecca said not to come by, he says he did stop by Rebecca's room and he was there very, very late. And he also says the two had consensual sex, but he was adamant that when he left, she was just fine. Of course, the police are not buying this. There's just way too much evidence, in fact, that he had killed Rebecca. For one thing, there was a note in her dorm room that was supposedly written by her that said she had been waiting for her boyfriend from back home, but he had not shown up. This note was actually forged by Jason trying to place the blame on her boyfriend. This doesn't really make any sense, but this is how it was reported. For another thing, when they questioned Jason, they could see that he had a cut on his hand and it was pretty noticeable. It was so noticeable, in fact, that they could see that it was not on his hand earlier that evening when he was captured on CCT footage. Jason also conveniently could not find the shirt he was wearing that night. So we're seeing a lot of circumstantial evidence here. Was there also forensic evidence? Oh, there sure was. Police found Jason's palm print and blood on a bottle of cleaning fluid in Rebecca's room. Rebecca's blood was found embedded in the metal links of a watch that Jason was wearing that night. Rebecca had traces of Jason's skin under her nails, clearly defensive wounds. Police located a pen in her room that bore skin cells from both Rebecca and Jason. He also said that they had consensual sex, but they found no evidence, just maybe not of an assault. I don't know. I'm a little confused here. I, I feel like I see where this is going, but okay, I'll just let you take me there. Yeah, I'm not sure why he felt the need to say that. It's unclear. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Police were able to determine that Jason went home and went to bed right after he killed Rebecca. Now, I'm not sure if they were able to determine this based on CCTV footage, cell phone data, or testimonials of his roommates, but either way, this is what they were able to conclude. The investigator said that it appeared that prior to the night she was killed, Rebecca had kind of cooled things off a bit with Jason. She didn't really want anything to get in the way of her studies, and she felt that, you know, it was more important for her to focus on her studies than to be with him. Police began to form an obvious theory here, right, that Jason was vindictive and angry because Rebecca, who texted him not to come over too late, did not want to let him in and she probably did not want to have sex with him. She likely opened the door for him because he wasn't a stranger and she probably said, you know, go away and then perhaps things escalated from there. And it sounds like he was already angry as well because he, it seems like, had made some advances possibly on other females and he was rebuffed. So he probably was, you know, kind of dual angry. Mm -hmm. Did anyone in the dorm hear anything, Amy? Yeah, you would think in such close quarters with such a vicious attack that someone would have heard something, but no one heard anything. But if you think about it, if a pen was forced down her airway, she would not be able to call for help. And maybe there were a few thumps from a struggle. But on late on a Thursday night, either people are sleeping or maybe they just assume it's normal college kids like being rowdy. And now I understand, too, that the um, pens are probably just weapons of opportunity. Yep, I agree. So that okay. m makes you think about premeditation as well. But we'll get there. Yeah. OK. Confronted with all the physical evidence, Jason admitted that he had gone over to Rebecca's that night to have sex. He wasn't sure what happened, but Rebecca ended up dead. He says he stripped her of her clothing, washed her body with fabric softener he found in her room to get rid of any evidence. He forged the note and he got rid of her clothes on the way out. It's possible that he did have sex with her, perhaps even after she was dead, because if he had used the condom, then the pathologist might not have found any evidence of either consensual or sexual assault. Right. Remember, his roommates said he had a condom that he was talking about that night. Okay. 
Okay, so what do we know about this guy, Jason? Again, he was 20 years old. He was a second-year undergraduate student studying history. According to the media, he came from a, quote, good family. His father was an engineer. You know, he had a very stable middle-class home life. He had no prior convictions. In fact, there's really nothing to suggest that he was capable of such a brutal, horrific murder. It was as if this murderous rage came out of nowhere. On August 21st, Jason was brought before the Crown Court and entered a plea of not guilty. Now, that would soon change. About two months later, on October 17th, at a pretrial hearing, he changed his plea to guilty. About two months later, on October 17th, at a pretrial hearing, Jason pled guilty. His trial had been scheduled to commence the following week. Now, this was the first time he had publicly admitted guilt. The investigators in the case made it very clear how they felt about Jason. They publicly said that he was clearly a dangerous man and that this was a sustained and extremely violent attack. And Rebecca's family was distraught because they said that Jason did not show any remorse. They also released a statement through the police that said, quote, Rebecca was a beautiful young girl. She was gifted, loving, and caring. She worked so hard to achieve her goals and ambitions, and this has now so cruelly and brutally been taken away by Jason Webster. They went on to say that we lost our only daughter and Adrian lost his only sister. Rebecca was a very special person who touched the lives of so many. She had so much to offer. The Love family also praised the police for their, quote, relentless work on closing the case. But Megan, it wasn't over because the guilty plea was just one step in the legal process. So although Jason admitted to the murder... They opted for a trial as to whether the extent of violence used amounted to torture, because this would very much impact the length of his sentence. At the proceedings, the pathologist told the court that the attack showed a large degree of force was used and that the puncturing of Rebecca's neck with the pen was a form of torture and that Rebecca was alive for the majority of the attack. The pathologist continued by saying some of her injuries were the result of, quote, the forceful dragging of the tip of a ballpoint pen across her neck. In my opinion, they are a form of torturing, a repetitive act with the aim of inflicting pain. It would be a very painful breaching of the skin, a very painful event, end quote. The doctor also said there was a forceful ramming of the pen down her throat. I don't know how that I'm surprised to hear, to be honest, I guess it's a last ditch effort, but a trial for this, it sounds brutal to me. Well, this is what Jason says, though. Jason does admit that he went to Rebecca's room drunk and he did hope that she would sleep with him. He testified that he became upset when she said that he had to leave and that he lost his temper. And then he isn't sure what happened. He could not recall inflicting the wounds on Rebecca, but he says he did accept that he caused them. According to Jason, he panicked when he realized that she was no longer moving and he grabbed the first thing available to him to try to, quote, prod her to revive her. A pen came to hand, quote, I wanted some reaction. I didn't want her to be dead, he said. I I don't like this this explanation, but okay. Well, he then said he sprayed her with fabric softener as another way to try to revive her. But then he admitted that he did use it to clean up the scene. He also admitted to forging the note. In January of 2008, Jason was sentenced to life imprisonment. But in the UK, Megan, this doesn't mean literal life unless it is termed a whole life sentence. So it was ordered that Jason serve a minimum term of 21 years. And after that, he would be eligible for release, similar to our parole eligibility why in the didn't US. He get the, do we know why he did not get the full life sentence? 
Yes. Um, a lot of people said he should have gotten the whole life order. But in fact, whole life orders can only be imposed where the offender is at least 21 years of age at the time of the offense being committed. And at the time, Jason was 20 years old. The Love family spoke out saying that the sentence was not harsh enough because Jason could be out of prison while still in his early 40s. Through investigators, the family gave a statement which read, quote, the sentence is being taken by the family in the good intent it was given. But their view is if Webster serves 21 years, 31 years or 41 years, he's still got something to look forward to. The family has got nothing. He's ruined the lives of Rebecca's brother, mother and father, and she can never be replaced. This is a case in which we can say maybe there is some closure. There is some justice in the sense that it's clear that the right person is serving time. But some people might argue that the sentence simply is not long enough. I would be one of those people. But again, I guess you're pointing out that the right person was apprehended and there was good police work. And oh, well, I wish the best for her family. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. We want to take a moment to tell you a little bit about our friends over at CrimeCon. What is CrimeCon, you might ask? It's only the greatest convention in the world of true crime where thousands of people come together to discuss their favorite cases, rub elbows with some of the biggest stars in the world of true crime, and interact with some of their favorite podcasters. CrimeCon is a great place to meet people just like you who have an interest in true crime, and you get to hang out with some of the biggest names in true crime. People like Nancy Grace, Paul Holes, and Dr. Henry Lee, just to name a few. It's a three-day event, and the next one is less than a year away. CrimeCon 2023 will be in Orlando, Florida, at the World Center Marriott, September 22nd to September 24th, 2023. And listeners of Campus Killings can save 10% on your standard badges for CrimeCon 2023 when you use our promo code at checkout when you go to CrimeCon.com. That promo code is Campus Killings, all one word, no spaces. Book your trip now before spots sell out. And who knows, maybe we'll see you there in September. I know you have a second case for us today, Amy. The next case we're going to be discussing occurs more than a decade after the murder of Rebecca Love. Libby Squire was born to parents Lisa and Russell on New Year's Day in 1998. She was from Northwest London. Libby was studying philosophy at the University of Hull. Now, we don't know a lot about Libby other than she had struggled a bit in the past with mental health and reportedly suffered from depression. On February 1st, 2019, a call came into the Humberside police reporting that a student was missing. An excerpt of the call to police was played on a recent three-part documentary called Libby, Are You Home Yet? The friend calls and says, So my friend, we put her in a taxi to get home, and now she's gone missing. The operator asks, Why do you think she's gone missing? The friend says, One of our friends is in the house and she has not got back home. The operator then says, what's her name? To which the friend says, Libby. Libby Squire was missing. When her friends returned to their shared flat that night, she was absolutely nowhere to be found. They knew that she should have been home since they themselves had sent her home. So here's what happened. On the night of January 31st, 2019, Libby was dressed for a night of partying with her friends. They were all getting together to go to the bars after returning back from Christmas break. This group of young women left their flat around 8.30 p.m. and walked to a friend's house nearby. By many accounts, Libby was in great spirits that night. Some of her friends reported that when they got to the club, Libby was a bit stumbly. 
but this was what she would often be like if she had been drinking. So they said this was a normal level of drunk for Libby, and it wasn't very concerning to them. The documentary I mentioned includes video footage of the gang arriving on foot. You could see that Libby is weaving a little, but she does not look like falling down drunk, just a little off kilter. But she must have seemed pretty inebriated because the bouncers turned her away, saying that she was too drunk to come in and that she should go home. At this point, one of her friends reports that they gave their ID to the bouncers. But since Libby was not allowed in because she was too drunk, they gave a taxi driver money and put her in a car. As the friend says, I told her to put on her seatbelt and she told me to fuck off. And I was like, fair enough. I shut the door and sent her on her way and we went into the club. This was around 11.30 p.m. Now, their place was about one and a half miles away from this bar. Now, when their friends returned home later, Libby was not there. One roommate called Libby's mom, while another called the police in the call that we discussed a few moments ago. Now, on that documentary, the taxi driver named Steve was also interviewed. Now, this was the one who had taken an inebriated Libby home. According to Steve, yes, she was a bit annoying, you know, annoying, angry, drunk, but um, he dropped Libby at the address that her friends had given him. I wonder if there's any reason to suspect him yet, but okay. Yeah, so he said, you know, according to him in this documentary, he said, you know, yeah, she was pretty drunk, but I had taken girls home that were a lot worse than that. So I don't think there was a reason to suspect him, but he was possibly the last person to see her. So, you know, of course, he's someone we need to look into. Now, Libby's disappearance was immediately very concerning to everyone. As we said early, she had suffered with depression and did have suicidal ideations at one point. So this made her parents a little more frantic than maybe they would have been otherwise because nobody knew where she had gone. Over 100 members of law enforcement and support personnel mobilized to search for Libby. They physically searched the area and nearby bodies of water and then canvassed people who live near her flat. They also started pulling all CCTV footage from the night that she vanished. Her parents also issued a public plea for information. The investigation was actually termed the largest and most comprehensive missing persons inquiry in Humberside police history. Wow. Yeah. And I'm happy to see this because sometimes when someone of this age goes missing, you don't see such a quick response. But I think this is a case in in which we could say law enforcement They were quick to take this seriously. Glad to hear that. On February 8th, a detective publicly stated that, quote, we are still treating Libby's disappearance as a missing persons inquiry. I have said previously that we are keeping an open mind as to her whereabouts, and that is still very much the case. Our number one priority is to find Libby Squire, and we are still conducting extensive searches and appealing for any information from the public. About a week later, on February 14th, the police published a photo of the clothes that Libby was wearing the night she was last seen. And this was based on photos taken from CCTV. And then a few days later, on February 16th, a $10,000 reward was announced for information. By February 28th, hopes had dimmed a bit. Police told the media, quote, that Libby's disappearance remains unexplained and that we must increasingly consider that she has come to harm. But... Not surprisingly, police actually knew way more than they were saying. Because of the plethora of CCTV cameras, investigators were able to determine where Libby was last captured on camera and actually figure out exactly where she vanished. 
They started out with footage near where she lived and they pulled up all of the footage in the area around that time and they just started watching. And this is what they found from the night of January 31st. They were able to identify and contact all of the following witnesses. There was a student who saw Libby get out of a taxi and he said, quote, she fell over face flat and was on the ground for 10 seconds. She was stumbling everywhere and struggling to walk. Libby was also seen on CCTV walking away from the direction of her flat. Some neighbor students invited Libby inside when they saw her, quote, crying and sobbing. But she told them that she wanted to go home and she walked away in the opposite direction, dropping her keys in their garden. They discovered this later. So Libby was staggering, crying and disoriented, so drunk that at one point she actually lay down in the snow. Two other passerby stopped to talk to Libby when they saw her on the ground in the snow, and they said that she was mumbling and difficult to understand, and at one point she asked one of the men to come lay down with her. When he refused, she started swearing at him, and the men gave up and walked away. They said they were with her from about 11.40 p.m. to 11.49 p.m. Another witness said Libby was lying on the ground and crying and screaming near a bus stop shortly before midnight. She was slurring her words and talking to herself and seemed very drunk. She said she tried to help Libby, but Libby would have none of it. After asking Libby several times if she was all right, she said Libby simply got up and staggered away. Libby apparently passed about 30 minutes sitting on a bench at an intersection not far from her apartment. Again, several passerbys asked if she needed help, but she declined. The last sighting of Libby on CCTV is believed to be around 12.05 a.m. on Friday, February 1st. I can't believe how many witnesses there are in this case. That's a lot. I wasn't expecting that. And it's nice to see that so many people offered her help because a lot of times I think too often we see people, they don't want to get involved and they ignore it. But it seems like a lot of there were a lot of good Samaritans here. So after she got up and walked away from that bench after her 30 minute rest time, she disappeared. One camera in particular, though, showed something really interesting. And this is visible online. It was dark outside. So the footage isn't all that clear but it appears to be footage from a building with a camera that was aimed at the street. Now, the footage showed approaching headlights and then a man who opened the driver's side of a sedan parked on the same side of the road as the camera. Remember, the driver's side is on the right in the UK. Mm -hmm. So the camera caught the man as he opened his car door, sat on the seat, and his feet were resting on the sidewalk. He appeared to be smoking a cigarette, and then he stayed there for a few minutes, closed the door, and walked away. Now, a few minutes later, someone approached the car from the other side, the passenger side, and opened and then closed the door. It appears possible from the video footage that someone sat down inside the passenger seat. The male driver then walked around the vehicle to the driver's side, got in, started the car, and drove away. It was 12.08 a.m. Oh, my gosh. This is unbelievable. So I guess they're assuming this is Libby. Could this be one of those actual, like, crime of opportunity cases, I wonder? I know you'll get there. Yeah, that'll be answered for you, I think. Okay. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. So unbeknownst to the public, an arrest was made in Libby's case on February 6th on charges of, quote, suspicion of abduction. Now, this arrest was before the reward, before the release of the description of her clothing, and so on. The police had arrested 26-year-old Powell Rolowicz after CCD footage led them to identify him. Now, it's likely that they were able to capture his license plate in one of those videos, and they had placed his car right in the area where Libby was seen. So this seemed pretty open and closed for them. 
They held him on abduction charges while they questioned him about Libby's disappearance. Humberside police released a statement saying that a court had granted the investigators a further 24 hours to question the man. But Megan, they didn't have Libby's body, so they could not charge him with murder. However, after arresting him, they executed a search warrant at his home and they found some items that allowed them to charge him with some other crimes. And also, after Libby went missing, members of the community came forward with some interesting information about this man. And this would allow them to bring some more charges. Wondering, what did they find when they raided his home? What are these items? Before I tell you what they found, I'll let you know that they found a young family. They found a wife and two very small children and a husband who was acting perfectly normal. Not a monster or anything you would think you're going to find. It was really just a normal family. But then they searched his car. And in the trunk of the car, there was a pink tote bag filled with sex toys, pornographic images of girls, women's underwear, and other items. There were also two masks. One was a scream mask, and the other was a man's face with red hair. Further searches located more women's underwear hidden inside his computer. What? Did you say underwear hidden inside his computer? Yeah, I'm not sure if it was in the computer bag or just shut into the computer. Oh, that's a new one. Yeah, so many of these items trace back to various burglaries around town. And several witnesses came forward to report interactions with Relowich that amounted to criminal activity on his part. So on February 10th, police charged him with seven unrelated offenses, two counts of burglary, two counts of voyeurism, two counts of outraging public decency, and one count of receiving stolen goods. Now, these charges resulted from seven alleged incidences in the city between 2017 and January 2019. And let me explain a little bit further what these charges mean, because that's what those were the technical terms. But a more blatant description of what he was caught doing um, includes masturbating in public, peeping through windows at women and couples being intimate, stealing sex toys, vibrators, condoms, undergarments, electronics, and money, and leaving, quote, trophies like condoms and undergarments on his victim's front doorknobs or stoops. He's a serial in the making, just so you know. This is all the telltale oh, signs yeah. of a serial and the, how they begin. Right, this is textbook serial offender yep. behavior. Yep. He had also been reported masturbating on the street, exposing himself to three different groups of women. He also followed a woman home on one occasion and ejaculated on her front door. So all of these charges allowed police to hold him and gave them time to put together a case against the abduction and potential murder of Libby. Sure. And on March 20th, the police got the break that they needed. Although... It was a break that nobody wanted. A nearby fishing boat found a body in the water, and within 24 hours, it was identified as Libby Squire. She still had the gold necklace with the letter L around her neck. Unfortunately, the body had been in the water for an estimated seven weeks, so the pathologist was not able to determine an exact cause of death. It could have been drowning, hyperthermia. She could have been strangled. It could have been a number of things. The pathologist later testified that he could not even determine whether Libby was alive or dead when she was placed in the water. Toxicology results would later reveal that Libby was two and a half times the legal limit when she died. Now, despite some of these obstacles, there were two things that helped police make their case against Relowich. There were two lacerations inside Libby's top lip that showed that someone had squeezed or compressed her mouth, probably to smother her. It also made clear that someone else was involved in what happened to her and that there was force involved. Mm -hmm. And the second thing 
was that even after seven weeks of submersion in the water, a vaginal swab taken from Libby's body was positive for semen, and that semen matched, who do you think? Relowitch. <laughs> yes. The probability was one in a billion that it belonged to someone else in the population rather than him. Clearly, this was enough. What else do we know about Relowitch? You've already told me about his criminal history, but is there anything else in his background we should know? Um, we know that he was born in Poland in June of 1994, and he, he emigrated to the UK in 2015. He was employed as a butcher. Um, as I mentioned, he was married and had two young children. He had met his wife a few years earlier on a dating website, and she was living in Poland at the time, but then she moved to the UK when they got married and had children. Um, after his arrest, she did move back to Poland and left her husband. Between the CCT footage of Libby that night Plus, there was a camera on the suspect's car. So investigators had a really good picture of what happened that night and how the paths crossed. So Powell's car was parked at the end of a street at 11.57 p.m. And it appears that he had been following Libby and he parked there deliberately. So this seems like probably a crime of opportunity. He was kind of strolling and he found a vulnerable woman. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was out coasting. He was looking for someone and he got lucky mm -hmm. and found someone. Yep. yep. So at the same time, CCTV footage showed Libby weaving as she walked down the street and then a shadowy figure following her on the other side of the street. Then the shadowy man emerged from his vehicle and he walked her to his car at the end of the street. He then placed her in the passenger seat and drove off at 12.08 a.m. Her gold watch was found dented and banged up at that location. Footage then captured the two in the car traveling toward a nearby park. They arrived at the park at 12.11 a.m. and then went off camera. At 12.14 a.m., a man who lived nearby the park said he awoke to sounds of a woman screaming. And then moments later, he saw a man running from the park. At 12.19, a nearby CCT camera showed flashing lights with what police believed to be him unlocking his car. He then arrived home at 12.23 a.m. and video footage showed him alone in his car. So this is very rare for investigators to have two pieces of footage that match up so perfectly along with an eyewitness or an, an ear witness. And, you know, it seems and plus they have that DNA. They don't even need all of this. But I was going to say the DNA is the lock, too. So this is a strong case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the police believe that he raped and killed Libby while he was at that park. He was there for a total of eight minutes. Now, when confronted with the video footage of him and Libby in the same place at the same time, and him driving his car, he denied raping and murdering her. He said he saw Libby on the street and she was in distress, and as a good Samaritan, he offered her a ride home. He said he felt sorry for her. According to him, quote, I walked past the girl and she said to me, stop, please, I need help. She said that she needs to go home, I need my mother, and she was crying and she was in tears. So he says he helped Libby into his car and she directed him in the direction of the field, that park I talked about. He says she then started to be sick, so he asked her to get out of his car. He said that she was walking away from the vehicle when he drove off. According to Powell, quote, I know nothing more about it. I've never seen her since. I wonder how he explained the semen that was found in his DNA found inside of her. Yeah, I don't think they I didn't, at this point, they probably didn't tell him yet. He would not give police anything as to what he had done to Libby. He stopped talking when they brought up the things they had found in the trunk of his car. And he couldn't explain his actions that night either. 
Police aren't sure when he placed Libby in the water. He's not sure if this was during their initial encounter or if he left the body there and he returned. And it's also not clear if she was already dead when he put her in the water. But regardless, there is a lot of evidence here. On August 13, Relowich pleaded guilty to nine separate crimes relating to the peeping, indecent exposure, theft, and burglary. He was sentenced to eight and a half years in prison. And while in prison on October 24th, he was charged with the rape and murder of Libby Squire. Even though prosecutors could not show without a shadow of a doubt that he murdered her, they felt that they had enough to send the case to a jury. Did Relowich get on the stand? Yeah, isn't that shocking? I was surprised to hear that he did. Very surprising. So he did so through an interpreter. So with this mountain of evidence against him, he took the stand. He admitted that he was horny that night and he was aimlessly driving around Hull, quote, looking for a woman to have easy sex. He said that he was parked on that street, not because he saw Libby walking, but because he wanted to look into people's windows and masturbate. It's not really a great defense so far. I mean, this is not helping him. Okay, go ahead. He also says he picked up Libby not to rape her, though. He simply thought she needed a ride home. He says she was incoherent and could not tell him an address. Again, he says he pulled over so she could vomit. Now he says he had consensual sex with her at the park. I figured that was why he was up there. I figured he was going to have to explain that DNA now. Yeah, yeah. Once he once he knows they have their DNA, he can no longer say that he watched her walk away. So he said that Libby had asked for a hug and they started kissing and they had sex on the ground. He said his face got scratched in the process. When they were done, he says he drove off, leaving her alive and well. He said to the jury, quote, I didn't do anything to Libby. I didn't kill her. I didn't rape her. And I left her where I said I left her. Now, the prosecutor concluded by telling the jury that Relowitz had made up a web of lies. And in reality, he preyed on Libby in her vulnerable and distressed state. Shockingly, the jury deliberated for five days, which I think is long considering the mountain of evidence. Me too. You're going to be more shocked to learn that they reported to the justice that they could not reach an agreement. What? We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Now, rules in the UK are a bit different than in the U.S., As explained by HullLive.com, quote, after six days of deliberations at the Sheffield Crown Court, the jury, made up of seven men and five women, seemed no closer to reaching a verdict. Justice Lambert told the jury on Thursday morning, if you find that you cannot all agree on your verdict, I will now accept a verdict that 11 or 10 of you agree on. That means I can accept a guilty or not guilty verdict of a majority of either 10-2 or 11-1. How interesting is that? Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, I always I thought that the UK system was similar in that it had to be unanimous. I I thought so as well. So juries are initially told that they must reach a unanimous verdict, but the judge can issue new directions as time goes on. When the jury struggles to all agree on the same verdict, the judge may decide that the verdict can be returned if the majority can reach an agreement. This is known as majority verdict and normally means that the judge is content to receive a verdict if 10 or more of the 12 jurors are in agreement. And that is what happened. On the sixth day, February 11th, 2021, the jury returned a verdict, a guilty verdict by a vote of 11 to 1 as to murder and unanimously as to rape. Libby's mother, Lisa, addressed the media after the verdict, stating, quote, 
As a family, today's verdict changes nothing for us. There is no closure. We don't get to have Libby back. Our lives don't revert back to normal. Libby will always be with us, and we are so proud of our beautiful, caring, wonderful girl. And although she has been physically taken from us, the memories we have and the love we share will never be taken. Now, at the sentencing hearing, Libby's family was permitted to address the court. Libby's mom, Lisa, said she could not articulate the torture of living without Libby. The younger sister, Beth, and her dad, Russ, also made statements about their pain and loss. The judge also gave a few remarks to Relowitz, saying, quote, talking directly to him about his, quote, perverted campaign of sexually deviant behavior, telling him, quote, your offending escalated, you grew increasingly emboldened, no doubt you were increasingly confident that you would not and could not be caught. You watch these women staring back at them brazenly, even after they had spotted you. She said that he was a very dangerous individual. And she ended by saying that Libby, quote, did not stand a chance after a malignant twist of fate brought her into Relowich's path. The justice then sentenced him to life with a minimum term of 27 years. Libby's parents subsequently petitioned the attorney general's office to consider whether the sentence was unduly lenient, but the AG office ruled that it was not. Now, many people found it shocking that a sexual deviant and predator such as Powell Relowitz had not been caught, much less prosecuted before he had killed Libby. This case had a lot of people talking about what has been titled, quote, minor sex crimes, like peeping, flashing, masturbating in public and so on. So these might be generously viewed as naughty and shameful, but not dangerous, which is very problematic. And it's unclear how many of these perverted actions were even reported to the police and if they were taken seriously when they were reported to the police. We do know for a fact that there was a woman in 2017 that caught him peeping into her windows and police downplayed her concerns, and she was concerned that it would escalate, and they they did not take it very seriously. Well, that is the problem with these offenses. Even though they seem non-serious, they are often the precursor to the very much more serious offending. Yes. And, you know, the police did make a public statement saying that they understand that people are interested to know whether Libby's tragic death could have been prevented, but they felt satisfied with the investigation, and, you know, they felt that they did what— You know, they did what they had to do and they felt that they acted correctly. Um, Lisa Squire has made it something of her mission to demand longer sentences for those who commit what she calls crimes of choice, such as rape and murder. And she says, I want life to mean life. He got a sentence of 27 years. He'll be 54 when he gets out. He's more than capable of doing it again. And he's more than able to have another life. She doesn't get to come back again in 27 years. Now, Lisa Squire even met with the prime minister to lobby for tougher sentencing rules. Lisa has also campaigned for swifter and firmer legal action against those who commit low-level sex offenses. And as a result, the Humberside police will launch the Libby campaign in partnership and with support of Libby's family. Now, this campaign will strongly encourage women and girls to report all non-contact sexual offenses immediately to police. A non-contact sexual offense can be anything from unsolicited exposure to sexual situations, verbal and behavioral sexual harassment, threats, and even the unsolicited use of a person's image in a sexual manner. So while there may not be any physical harm, the emotional impact of these experiences on a victim can affect them deeply. And as we see, they can also escalate into more dangerous behaviors. This could prevent harm. In early 2022, Libby's mom, Lisa, also made a request 
to meet with Powell Relowitz. Initially, he denied the request, but in October of 2022, he agreed to sit down with Lisa. Lisa explained her motivation to Sky News, saying, quote, A lot of people don't understand this. I don't hate him. I'm not angry with him. I just want information from him. I don't wish to forgive him. I don't wish to understand why he did what he did. For me, it's very much about finding out how she was in those last 20 minutes of her life. For me, it's really important to find out how she died. I need to know that. So as of this airing, the meeting has not yet taken place as far as I was able to find. That's something that we talk about known as restorative justice. Correct. And I think that's really, I I think not everyone could understand that, but I understand how some victims and victims' family members feel the need to confront the person that took so much from them. I've absolutely heard that before and that um, they want to know what happened in the last moments. And if that's what gives her some peace of mind, I hope that happens for her. I agree. And I I think this case illustrates the importance of if you see someone in need, help them out. And while I'm happy that so many people stopped, I wish some people would have maybe called the police for help for Libby since she was in such an intoxicated state. I by no mean blame those individuals, but I think it's a good reminder to all of us to watch out for each other. Absolutely. Thank you, Amy. All right, that's it for today, and we hope you will join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.